God's city is large and prosperous, and it is a very spacious city. However, we must remember that it is not easily achieved, and the great prosperity and freedom that is found in the kingdom of God, it is something which comes at a very, very high cost. And we'll find that the great liberties and beauties of life always come at a very high cost, and we must appreciate that revival is a beautiful thing. And even now, um, the joy of having a little puppy dog that I have behind me, you know, the joy of, of loving one of God's creatures, it is also something which comes at a cost. And at the beginning of this, I would like to say, um, for those who have been familiar with myself, I used to have Charlie the Church History Dog, who is a little um, brown chihuahua. He passed away on July 19th of 2019, and it's been a little bit over a year, and I have finally decided to get another small dog, and here he is, here with me in the studio. This is a little p puppy, and... Um, he didn't totally have a name yet. He might be named Baron. We'll see. We'll see. But anyways, back to our message. We're looking at Nehemiah chapter 7 today. And God's perfect love, it is always something which chooses to revive rather than to kill. We are in an era that embraces despair over liberty. And just as we have looked at the contrast between feelings and meaning in the past, today we're going to be looking at the difference between despair and liberty and how we really do live in a day and age where a lot of people, they are pushed into a worldview of despair. And that really is a very, very tragic thing. So... We have to realize that in our nation right now, the only path forward that is one of restoration is one of revival. And revival starts between you and God. With your walk with God, it is something which is a very personal matter. You know, we're so often taught that you have to go out and sort the problems of the world first before you get your own house in order. But that's not what Scripture tells us. Scripture tells us this logic that says, sort out the, the log in your own eye before dealing with the speck in your neighbor's. And this really is part of a larger worldview that is found within Scripture that says God comes to transform there within your life and you move forwards to spread your fire of revival throughout the whole world. And that's how God works. That's how the church works. And that is a very important thing. And today, the title of our message is Home Run Revival. And we're going to be reading Nehemiah 7. And it has a long list of names. We're not going to go through all of that in entirety. But we are going to be taking an examination of kind of the front and tail end of the chapter because there's some very important things in here that we could easily miss. So without any further hesitation, let's open up in prayer and then we will jump into Nehemiah chapter 7. So let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we are assembled together, Lord, even over the internet, I pray that you open up our hearts and minds to receive your wisdom, strength, and encouragement. And even as we are here with a, a little dog making some noise in the background, Lord, I pray that you can bring joy to us in life, that we can have this great desire for revival, that we would not wait on any others, but we would look to you and we would be men and women who rise up with great vigor to spread the fire of your gospel in this world around us, which is so wrought with desperation. We ask all of this through the, the name of our Lord, Christ Jesus. Amen. And I hope throughout this, um, the little puppy, Baron, acts good. There he is. He's playing around with his, his tongue. And, and he's a long-haired chihuahua. Um, so he's, he kind of looks fluffier than he actually is. Um, he's got his tiny little toys. He, he has tiny toys. Um, he's a tiny dog. Anyways, let's get into Nehemiah chapter 7. This is a, a great and excellent chapter. Um, it falls into the category of kind of like Nehemiah chapter 3, where you could perceive it to be reading from the phone book if you're, if you're not careful. But it is something which merits some deliberate examination to spend some time with it and, and realize there are beautiful things to be found in here. So I'll be reading from the NRSV, and it opens up by saying, Now when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites, they had all been appointed. I gave my brother Hanani charge over Jerusalem along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel. For he was a faithful man and he feared God more than many. 
And now, I know we've just read like two verses into this, but one of the things that you find is that Nehemiah, he's very choosy about the people that he puts in positions of power. Now, he is very interested in bringing back all of those who have left Jerusalem, those who have been dispersed around when King Nebuchadnezzar came in and brought destruction on Jerusalem and the Jewish people. But Nehemiah, he realizes that if someone's going to be in charge of the citadel, there of the castle, it needs to be somebody who is a faithful man and fears God and more than others. Like it needs to be a uniquely faithful person to do this. And it's also interesting that Nehemiah, he's appointing these people to do this. He's not someone who is who is really looking for a, a politician, someone who's begging for these positions, someone who is trying really hard to get them, but instead he's looking at people's faith. And when you contrast that with where we're at as a society now, like if you're someone who is a, a fearful man that fears God more than many or a fearful woman that, that fears God and realizes that you're created in the image of God, you know, the whole world will do everything it can to keep you out of public office. You know, we have created a system where we have people who have an, have an abscessed relationship with God, where there's an infection, where they, they will use the Lord's name in vain if they want to here there. But we live in a day and age where it's very obvious that we're, we're not being ruled by people who are interested in fearing God um, and having a unique relationship with God. And, you know, there's real consequences to that. But Nehemiah, if his, his revival is to be a home run revival, and just to give a definition of that, you know, the, the victory has been won, the, the effort, the and, and really to hone in on the baseball reference, the, the home run after the, the batter has hit the ball and it's, it's gone out of the park and everybody's going excited, there is an onerous responsibility, which seems so natural that, you know, if you're standing out there on one of the bases, you know, run towards home plate. If you're the batter yourself, you know, go ahead, make that victory walk um, at any pace you want because the, the ball's out of the park. But yet we live in a day and age where it's like the victory has been won for us. Christ has died. He has been resurrected. But yet people, they don't want to, to move and go around, you know, the whole diamond. We go home base. Like we're, we're here, have the revival. Nehemiah in his day and age, you have to keep in mind, it's very rare for people to to follow through in real life. You know, in, in a sporting arena, people are in the moment, they're motivated to do that. But so often people, they'll get to like a great climax and then they'll kind of, you know, peter out. They, they won't um, continue on. But as for Nehemiah, he realizes, you know, I've got to put people in charge. If I want this revival to be seen through to the end where it has meaning and it's something which is 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 beautiful. It's, it's not just desperate. It's not just this wallowing in, in dismay, but it is something which, which has lasting freedom and liberty. Then we're going to have to, to, to follow through on this. And picking up in verse 3, and it says, And then I said to them, The gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot, while the gatekeepers are still standing guard. Let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their watch post and others on the houses that have been hilt. And those that are... In the city, the city is wide and large, but few people within it were few because no houses have been built. Now, earlier in this this chapter, I referenced how the walls are more than walls, and you've got people that are, are building next to their houses, um, and there there is some some structures that overlap with the existence of the walls. But all of Jerusalem itself has been destroyed, and Nehemiah's revival it doesn't just limit itself to the to the superstructure that surrounds the city, but it is a revival that looks to to remake everything about it. And he realizes that there are still a lot of people who are all over the world. There are a lot of Jewish people who have not returned home. They have not made it back to, to the land that their God set aside for them. And Nehemiah, he, he doesn't want this to be the case. Nehemiah wants, you know, he's had the, the, the ball has been had out of the park, and it's time for the home run 
journey. It's time to, to make that leap and to, to really see it through. So in verse five, it says, then my God put into my mind to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. Again, family is very important to God. And for those who are true stewards of God's kingdom, family is very important to us. Um, and it should be. And when Nehemiah looks at this, he says, you know, I'm going to enroll people by genealogy. And he found the book of genealogy and he says, and I found the book of genealogy and those who were the first to come back. I also found it written in them. And he goes on and he makes a list. He says, these are the people of the province who came out of captivity of those exiles whom King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. And then for a good portion of the book of Nehemiah, here in chapter chapter 7, he, he lists, he goes through a whole set of verses. He talks about the, the descendants. He talks about the different families and their connections. And he even gets into some tribal connections within the, the tribes of Israel. And he, he details this because it's very, very important. And just to, to tap into some of this, because I don't want us to over, over, you know, just shoot this as if it's reading from the phone book. He looks at this stuff and he says, you know, from the, the house of Elam, you know, 1,254. From that of Zatu, eight. 145. And, you know, he, he goes through these and, you know, of Asgad, there are 2,322 there from that family. And he goes through all of these and some of the families are larger than others. But this is a very, very, very significant thing because there are a lot of people that are being brought back into living in a society, in a city, in really the, the house and the vision that God had for his people that has been meant all along. There's a restoration that is happening here where people, they are returning to something which had been missing for generations. And when you look at our world right now, man, this is this is what we need. This is what America needs. We need to return to living as, as God would have us live. And again, America is not the, the chosen nation of God, and it's certainly not the kingdom of God, but it is a, a unique nation, when you look at the course of history, that has been built on the the principles of God. And when you look at America right now, we need this restoration, this interest in saying, let's restore the families. You know, you can't overglaze how Nehemiah puts this great emphasis on restoring the families, restoring those who, as God designed us to live, restoring them in that matter, bringing them back. That is what revival ultimately takes you to. And in verse 39, Nehemiah says, you know, the priests, those who are the descendants of Jediah, and he goes into that. There's a whole slew of them. The Levites, the descendants of Jeshua. He goes into them. There's a whole mess of them. There's a whole whole just lot of, of these people. And even down to the temple servants. You know, they're important too. Bring in their names, the descendants of Zeha. And he goes through all of it. The descendants of Solomon's servants. He brings those in. And it is so fascinating to see how all of this happens. And when you look there in, in verse 60, it says, All the temple servants and the descendants of Solomon's servants, there were 392, which is a lot of people. And if you go all the way back to Solomon, you know Solomon is, you know, 500 years earlier than Nehemiah, or perhaps more, just rounding off some easy numbers. But, you know, the following those who came up from Tilmara, Terhura, Kerub, Adon, and Immer, they could not prove their ancestral house or their descent. So, whether they belong to Israel. And this is fascinating because when when people could not prove their genealogy, you know, Nehemiah is quite strict about this. He says, we must be a set-apart nation. He doesn't kick people out, but he does exclude them from the priesthood. He does say, well, you're not, you can't prove that you're of the right tribe, so we're, we're having to have these rules. And that sounds so harsh, but Nehemiah has witnessed generations and generations of decay where there were not standards applied and the people forgot who they were. And he's telling people, you know, we're going to dig into our roots. We're going to find out who we are. And we're going to live in a society where none may live in shame. 
And there in verse 66, he said, The whole assembly was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337, and they had 245 singers, male and female. They had 763 horses, 245 mules, and 435 camels, and 6,720 donkeys. Um, so as you can see, there's a lot more donkeys than there were camels. Do with that as you may. But what we find here is that Nehemiah, he cares about it all. He, the entirety of life. Full revival, it does care about the entirety of life. And built into this chapter is the fact that the spiritual affairs of the house of God, they don't just stop on a day of the week. We in our modern day and age, we've been sold this terrible lie that says your personal faith, that is something between you and God. You work that out between you and God and you don't bring it into the public sphere. You don't force your religion on anyone else. And what we find out is that there are consequences when you remove the spiritual nature of life from the public sphere. And now, wrapping up this chapter, there in verse 70, it says, now some of the heads of the ancestral houses, they contributed to the work. And the governor, gave, the governor, who's Nehemiah, gave to the treasury 1,000 derricks of gold, 50 basins, and 530 priestly robes. And there some of the heads of the ancestral houses gave into the building fund 20,000 derricks of gold and 2,200 minas of silver. And there were the rest of the people they gave was 20,000 derricks of gold, 20,000 minas of silver, and 67 priestly robes. So there, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all the Israelites, they settled in their towns. And when the seventh month came, the people began settling in their towns. And now, that last little snip, snippet there, Ezra is about to read the law to the people. The festivals are about to begin, and I kind of want to just include that footnote here at the end of this chapter. Because even though God's city was large and spacious, it's not enough just to, to have Jerusalem. There is a spiritual side which must be realized. And we must realize the great spiritual side of, of our own era and realize we're in spiritual warfare and we've got to face what we're up against. We've got to pursue revival. We need revival. And there's great beauty, great liberty in realizing who you are and what God has made you for. And now, stepping into really the message side of our analysis of this text, God's city, it is large and spacious, but that is not something which is easily achieved. The, the city of God, it is something which is beautiful. And the great liberties and beauties of life, they always come at a very high cost. And we must appreciate that revival, it is a beautiful and noble thing. Revival is the only way for true repair and restoration of a nation. It is. You know, God's perfect love chooses to redeem rather than to kill. That's a very important logic that we find throughout the New Testament. And it's found in the Old Testament too, but really Christ comes and solidifies this for us. We are in an era that it, it totally embraces despair over liberty. When you look at everything going around in American culture right now, you really have two spiritual belief systems at war with one another. One of them is very desperate, it has no aspirations, and it, it ignores truth to the point of annihilation and destruction. It lies, it doesn't care, it is no longer a half-hearted evil, but it is wholehearted evil. And the possessive spirit hates all things good and aspirational. But God, God is a God of excellence, a God of great liberty. And the gospel of Christ Jesus shows us liberating meaning through perseverance. Revival is the only path forward for our nation, and it must be a powerful revival that hits a home run. Revival starts with you and your walk with God. Do not forget that. You know, looking at Nehemiah chapter 7, it would have been tragic if he had finished those walls in 52 days, as we saw in chapter 6, without experiencing revival of the laws and the festivals. To overcome such an unimaginable problem, 
And then to let it all be robbed of lasting meaning, that would be so shameful. And you know, Nehemiah, he opens up his whole revival by saying, people, it's shameful to live this way. Let us return to what God designed us for. Our God is awesome and almighty. It is shameful to be like this. And there are going to be liars and people who conspire against us, but we're not caring about that. Look and focus on God and let revival unfold. You know, for Nehemiah to to have not followed through and recorded the genealogies, to not have Ezra read the law and teach people in a meaningful way, and to not have the festivals, it would be like a batter in a baseball game to come up and hit the ball, hit the ball out of the park, and then just stand there. And everybody else who's out on one of the different bases, just to stand there with no desire to ever walk towards home plate. You know, it would be ridiculous the encumbrance had been endured. The ball has been out here on the park and all one must do is joyfully walk home. And when our own world and age right now, the victory has been won for us. All we have to do is make that joyful walk home. And what a great joy it is indeed. You know, the great things of God, they always come with great, great cost and work. I've got my little puppy here who has slipped up under my feet. He's gone to sleep. Um, it's going to be work to raise this little dog, but there's great joy in that. In the things that are created by God, there is always great joy. But it's not easy. Nehemiah's revival, it hits home run once the laws are read and the festivals begin. But it wasn't easy. It came at a great and enormous cost. Jerusalem needed revival just as America needs it right now. We need men and women who are distinct in their love for God and they are willing to teach others to have a strong voice as leaders in our nation, not people who are taking a back seat to those who want destruction and a society of despair. When you look there at Nehemiah, he, he chooses Hanani, his brother, and Hananiah he puts them in charge because they have a unique faith. Hananiah has a unique faith, and that's why he is chosen for the work that he's appointed to. It's not because he, he went out and he, you know, he played the right political speeches here and there. He said the right words. He talked to a teleprompter. He was concerned with appeasing everybody and having unity and no division. No, none of that is all. That's not how Nehemiah's eyes see the world. Nehemiah selects people that says, do you have a unique fear of God? Do you have a unique faith in God? Okay, well, then you can be in charge of something. You don't? No, you can't. Bye. And I know that sounds so mean, but that is what is necessary. We have to draw lines because that actually is what liberates people and opens up for new opportunity. If you want the kingdom of God to be the kingdom of God, then it has to be distinct from the world. It can't just be what the world wants you to do. And we need to, to be people who realize that the world does not want revival. Sambalot and Tobiah, they didn't want Nehemiah's revival to pull off a home run. Not for himself and his feather brother, fellow brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. They hated this. They hated the very idea that righteous sacrifice might once again be taken seriously in the world. And in our day and age, we find ourselves also up against such wholehearted evil that despises the idea that the eternal light of the gospel of Christ Jesus will once again be liberating people through the sacrifice of Christ. And this is something which is, is worth pointing out. You know, last week I talked about the, the face of evil as C.S. Lewis describes it, how wholehearted evil has a striking similarity to innocence. And if people don't have eyes that are correctly calibrated by God... Then, you know, Matthew 6.23 references this, you know, people who, who don't have eyes for God, you know, if the, the light that is in you is darkness, how great then is the darkness? Wholehearted evil is very deceptive. It comes to people. It's, it's a wolf in sheep's clothing, but it's not at all obvious to people who don't have eyes for God. It's, it's successful in, in telling people that it's, it's innocent. Nehemiah was up against wholehearted evil. He had people like Shemaiah come lie to his face who's a false prophet, by the way, in, in chapter 6. We talked about that last week. What we find is that there are people in this world who are possessed by wholehearted evil, 
And may God have mercy on their soul. We, God doesn't want people to live like this. God doesn't even want Tobiah and Sambalot to live like this. Um, there are people who are possessed by wholehearted evil, and we cannot negotiate with them. For so long here in America, we've had this belief that people are naturally reasonable, that you can just go to the debate stage and people will, will take the more reasoned argument. That's, that's not true. We've been kind of, we've had the wool pull over our eyes to think this is true, but it's, it's not. We're going to have to realize that when you're up against wholehearted evil, wholehearted evil, it, it ignores truth. It ignores truth. It ignores truth to the point of destruction. And we, in our modern day and age, the spirit possessing our culture, it's infected all of our institutions, even including our Christian institutions. We as individuals, men and women transformed by Christ Jesus, we have to be stepping up to bat for home run revival, just as Nehemiah did. Revival that seeks excellence and nobility, just as our God is excellent and almighty. Don't be fooled into waiting for anyone to come before you. For our society, it is too far gone to rely on our institutions. But don't be discouraged either. You know, First John, the, the great epistles by, by John, um, he writes in chapter 5, verse 4, he says, Everyone born of God conquers the world. Everyone born of God conquers the world. Whatever is born of God will conquer the world. And that, that is a beautiful truth. The victory is ours. The, the ball has been hit out of the park. None of us were skilled enough to, to make that, that, that hit. You know, the, the pitcher, the, the evil, the forces of death, destruction, decay, they, they threw a curveball that nobody could stand up to. But Christ came and he sorted this out. That great task has been done for us. And all we have to do, you know, walk. We've been trained not to, though. We've been trained to, to just sit there on our, our various bases and just sit there and be like, okay, well, we'll, we'll stand here. You know, I, I see that the, the, the ball has just hit all the park, but I think I'll just stand here because I'm waiting on the experts. I'm waiting on someone else to, to help me out here. You know, we can't do that. We should be encouraged in the fact that when you look at our world right now, so many of the old objections to Christianity, they have been confirmed as disingenuous arguments. And, and I do need to point this out. I know I'm not at the literal pulpit right now. I'll be there here in a few hours. But the figurative pulpit, which is the, the kingdom of the Logos studio, or maybe metaphorical, or just different form. Who knows? But whatever. From, from the pulpit, I do want to say, you know, a lot of the arguments we've heard, we've heard people say things like regarding abortion that, you know, we, we respect abortion because of a woman's choice. You know, those, that was always a disingenuous argument. It was never about someone's choice. And you know this is a lie because the same voices who said that we respect women's choice, now in the age of coronavirus, they won't let anybody have a choice, whether it be masks, whether it to be even to visit your own loved ones in the hospital. You know, one of the great evils that is currently going in our age, and that's why I want to talk about this. Um, I don't want to run over my little dog here. One of the great evils going on in our world right now is that people are sick. Um, some with the coronavirus, and a lot of people without, when you, you actually look at the real numbers of people hospitalized, it's, it's not what the media hype makes it out to be, though it is a serious thing. But people who are in the hospital right now, they're not allowed to have their loved ones come in and see them. And, and I've known people, I, I knew a family whose son died, and they didn't want to let the parents come in to see the son. I, I know several people right now, and as a pastor, there's a lot of people I haven't been allowed to come in and see. What a great evil it is. And this is totally breaking the commandment to honor one's mother and father. Um, to have people who have lived their lives and then to be sick and dying and a culture to say you cannot go in there and visit them. In their final moments on this earth, that their family. And I don't mean like one person come in, which a lot of places, some places will allow that, but they're, they're very picky about this stuff. But to not let one's full family come around them, every generation of our ancestors would look at us in shame. Just as Nehemiah thought it was shameful for the people to live in ruins, our ancestors would all look at us in shame and say, you haven't let people's families come and surround people when they're sick and dying. For people in their moments, one of the, 
the least of these moments in life where someone is sick and dying, our culture right now, not to let people come in with their loved ones, the devil and his demons laugh at that. When the church uses language like non-essential, essential, and goes along with this stuff, you know, we're in lockstep with these evil doctrines. This is straight out of hell, folks. That's evil. Anyone who says a, a person dying can't have their full family around them and their family to have full access to them, that cannot understand beauty, nobility, purity, justice. You know, a lot of people, they just, we don't care in, about corona. We're not afraid of it. When you look at the data, there's not really any evidence that says that what human input is used against the virus has a, a big impact on how the virus spreads. Um, nowhere in human history have we lied to ourselves thinking that's the case, but to let people die alone. You know, I was so frustrated over this yesterday and today. It almost made me so mad. Um, just the, That's going on in our world right now. Nehemiah would not have not tolerated this, and we should not tolerate this. And I bring that up to say, Many of the evils in our world, they have shown that they really are evil. A lot of their arguments they had in the past, you know, they say, oh, we can't believe in God because you can't prove that he's real. Um, it's not logical. It's not reasonable. Well, look at where we're at right now. Look at how unreasonable people are. They don't care about reason. Yeah, and you come to coronavirus and say, oh, well, there's so many unknowns. Well, we have to err in one way, which it always goes in one direction. It always goes in the socialistic dystopian hellscape. Um, it never goes in the, the place of personal agency. And, and by the way, there actually are a lot of experts on this, people like, you know, Stanford, Oxford, um, Duke University, who say things that are contrary to the big panic narrative we get. Um, but those voices aren't allowed because we only go one direction. It's towards hell. We're, we're marinating as hell wants to eat people. Nehemiah would have never tolerated this. He comes, he appreciates families, he appreciates the commandments of God, the festivals, the joys of life. We have so many people who, who have called the church intolerant, but they have shown that they are truly diabolically intolerant. It's all disingenuous stuff. But the gospel of Christ Jesus shows us something totally different. It's not a race to the bottom in the church. It's not just a pointing out who's a hypocrite and not, but in the church we walk towards heaven, and heaven is beautiful because it is. How beautiful it is to see revival strike the people of God in Nehemiah. You know, Nehemiah recording these names, this has not been done for generations. He has to dig and find the old records, and, you know, they can't even find all the records. The forces of wholehearted evil don't want this stuff to happen, but Nehemiah, a man who is wholeheartedly looking towards God, he does. He wants it to happen. You know, in our world, people, they want to say, oh, the task is too great. You could never rebuild Jerusalem in 52 days, but they do. The victory, it belongs to God, and we simply have to step into a worldview that says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. We have to wake up with a set of eyes like those of Abraham and Jochebed, Moses' mother, who were fully willing. They put their child, their children, in the hand of God. Not knowing if the child would live or not. They, they made that real leap of faith. You know, when they had a real cost that would, you know, potentially in the life of their child, they made that leap of faith and said, you know what? The Lord that made the heavens and the earth, I am putting my child in his care. And just like Queen Esther saying, if I perish, I perish. Jochebed said that about her own, her own son Moses. Abraham did this with Isaac. They make this statement, you know, if we perish, we perish. But we're going to trust this full power of the mysterious God who made the heavens and the earth. We're going to embrace his covenant. And we as Christians, we must embrace the true way of life and understand what it means to live in a kingdom of resurrection where the very powers of life and death have been re redefined. For far too long, we've been trapped under two terrible boots. One was a boot that says, you know, listen to your leaders, your leaders. And all of our leaders in our world, they want to listen to Sam Balot and Tobiah. They want to step down from the wall and, and debate with voices that are wholeheartedly evil and are disingenuous. We, we've been bowing down to ignorant stuff in our society, into 
disingenuous, idolatrous stuff. You know, that's one of the boots that's been crushing us here in America and in the church. We've allowed leaders who are who are perceived as being palatable. They have a nice temperament, and we think, oh, well, that therefore they've got that nice temperament, therefore they're righteous, right? No, no, the devil can speak through a, a calm temperament. He can come to Eve in the garden, ask the serpent, speaking calmly and collectively. We need people who uniquely fear God. Secondly, the second boot that's been on us is within the church, there have been too many reluctant to start running because we've been trained to not start running once the ball's hit out of the park. We've relied on others to do the work for us, and we have remained in constant disbelief that we're actually in a state of spiritual warfare and our nation is decaying. The victory is ours. The path home is already open. We don't have to wait on anyone, but let's go. Let's, let's not just sit marinating in the hungry mouths of hell. Let's run. Run towards home. And Nehemiah teaches us that the most effective mode of revival really is when it starts with individuals and it spreads out. It does. That's the beautiful thing. Now, I know I'm about 30 minutes into this, and I haven't even got to, to really what I wanted to talk about. So let's jump to that. I want us to talk about the difference between despair and liberty, because these two are opposites. With liberty comes responsibility and risk. It's a challenge of one's old soul to co- overcome the great trials of life. Liberty is neither easily purchased nor easily maintained. Do we think that the salvation that was so easily um, received by us, that it came for free? You know, we can receive it easily, but it comes in an extraordinarily high cross. You know, we, we have this language of easy and freedom that comes with salvation, and perhaps we think that it's just something which you hand out. God himself had to die and really die in order to purchase for us salvation. Huge cost. Liberty from sin and death came at a very high cost. It wasn't easily purchased for us, though we might easily receive it. And although we were to receive it on our end without having to pay this debt, liberty from tyranny, too, it comes at a great cost. And it's a spiritual affair to, to live out the biblical principles in such a way that maintains order. You know, liberty is noble. And all of our modern notions of liberty, they originate from the New Testament. And liberty, it, is, it exists in opposition to despair. You know, despair, it, it, it resurrects the old sins of covetousness and tells people that their unsatisfied desire is good, to desire things that don't belong to yourself. You know, God's pretty clear. God never says that things like slavery and servanthood is good. But God also tells people, look, while you're down there in fallen creation, don't you covet someone else's servant? Don't you covet someone else's thing? Someone else's wife? You know, nowhere in Scripture does God say that polygamy is good. A lot of people will say because it's in there and we, we have, you know, heroes of Scripture, perceived heroes of Scripture who, who have multiple wives, therefore it must be a good thing. Nowhere does God say it's good. Nowhere does God say that, oh, it's, it's good for you to, to have slaves and things like that. But God realizes we're in fallen creation, and even amidst the, the sin and turmoil, God says, don't let yourself be corrupted by the sin of covetousness. Don't let someone else's sin corrupt you. The very idea that, that an individual should have worth as an individual, that's a New Testament idea. That you should be freely able to navigate life in service to God, should you choose. That is something which comes in the New Testament. So many of the people in our world who want to deconstruct and destroy our, our nation, they don't even understand what they are trying to tear apart. The very idea that an individual has a voice that's worth listening to, that comes from the New Testament. The idea that every child has a mind worth educating, that comes from the idea of being born again. It all originates out of the Christian logic, the products of the way of life, the Christian faith. The idea that even the least in society should be cared for, you know, that is a product of the way of life, the Christian faith. And these are all products also of liberty. Liberty and charity go hand in hand. You don't have to force people to be charity. When you look throughout history, the more totalitarian a government is, the harder it is for people to be charitable. We must show people that it is both true 
the light and the power of the gospel. And it is absolutely true. You know, the spirit possessing our culture hates objective truth, but Christianity was built on objective truth. Christianity is built on salvation and healing, both in the spiritual and bodily sense. For the word of God, the very logos, the logic of creation itself, it is Christ Jesus himself. We must show people honor and nobility, which is a concept altogether different from the desperate meaning of safety first. We must point to a real justice, which is perfect and is a beautiful gift of God and fundamentally opposed to the notions of collective justice, which wickedly judge people as groups. And I don't care who you are in the church and you think that you're going to thread the camel through the eye of the, the needle on collective justice to rewrite history. It's evil from the pits of hell. Stop doing it. Repent of it and the sins will not be retained. Quit retaining sins of the past. We have so many in our world that want to retain sins of the past. It's, it's, it, and it does. It's, you know, when Jesus gives us the commandment in the gospel according to, to St. John chapter 20, verse 23, he says, if you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you retain anyone's sins, they are retained. You know, that is both a commandment of Christ and also a logical observation. If you retain sins, they're retained. You know, there's a reason why all of these diversity training, class, training classes, they don't help. They actually make the problems worse because they retain sins of the past that aren't actually applicable um, to every people involved, but they're forced to act like it is. Suffering is inherent to life, and this is where this whole worldview gets off. The Jewish psychologist Viktor Frankl made an observation while he was imprisoned by the Nazis in Germany. He was in Auschwitz, a concentration camp. He said, you know, all suffering is like a gas. Filling the volume of its container, regardless of what one experiences, and trust me, Viktor Frankl, he didn't know if he'd ever see his wife again, his family, his children. But he said, you know, all suffering is like a gas. It fills the volume of its container. Whether you stub your toe, you know, I, I did. I rammed my, my foot into a rod yesterday rather severely. Worked on that big 6.0 turbo diesel for like a week. Um, laid up on there. Felt like I was being folded in half and sucked into a pipe by some horror movie. Um... Suffering, it always tends to consume you. Like, you think it's the worst thing ever, working on a big big truck like that. Um, you think it's the worst thing ever. And even Viktor Frankl, he said this, you know, I'm, I'm, will I ever see my wife, my family again? It seems like the worst thing ever. It always seems like the worst. It, it doesn't matter where you are. Suffering always seems to be at its worst. And the great lie that our young people are told is that that suffering is not inherent to, to fallen creation, you know. It's, it's so sad. But the gospel of Christ Jesus gives us liberty to this. You know, the gospel of, of Christ, it comes and it shows people purity, something which is it's more organized than the destructive chaos of our world. This is what comes with Christian liberty. It's liberty from the chaos. We must show people beauty and things that are lovely, everything from the music that, that runs through, through our veins, it stirs our nerves, takes us to the edge of our chair. We must hold the beauties of humanity. All of this, they are products of God, for he builds beautiful and lovely things. The spirit possessing our age hates beauty, and it takes joy in celebrating. It celebrates the ugliness that it wreaks on our nation and our people. We must teach goodness, which is neither naturally found nor a random occurrence. We must teach that all the virtues of God, they are true. and We must live out lives reflecting that of our maker. Liberty is found in Nehemiah's revival because it hit a home run and it followed through with it. People need to know who they are and why they exist. You look in our world right now, people don't know who they are or why they exist. It's why things like transgenderism are, are like running rampant. This is where our world is. People, they have very little meaning. And it's, it's so sad. They've been marinating in the mouths of hell and we have to do better than that. We have to be the church who stewards of the gospel to bring people out of this. The world wants you to live in fear and find it acceptable that your loved ones can't be visited in the hospital. But that's not noble. It's repulsively evil. But don't be discouraged. 
Don't be discouraged, for the victory is ours. It's always possible to live for God. The world desires you to be desperate, be wrought in despair, but let us spend our energy focusing on the noble freedom found in God's kingdom. People are hungry for an alternative. The victory is won for us. The ball's hit out of the park. Let's take it home. So thank you for joining me. We're going to say the Lord's Prayer, and then we'll wrap this up. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we come to you today, be with us as we, we pray the prayer that you taught us to pray, Lord. I pray that you be with each of the individuals in our, our wherever we are. I know that there are people who, who watch and listen to this who have reached out to me who have ailments in life, Lord. I pray that you be with them. And Lord, hear our words as we pray the prayer which you taught us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, here on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, power, and glory forever. Amen. And there he is. Um, if anybody has any thoughts on names for my little puppy, thinking about naming him Baron Dogenstein, my blue healer is named um, Count Dogula. Um, but who knows? May name him the vicar. We'll see. But on that note, God love you, and have a blessed day.